Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. One of the classic Protestant catechisms is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Apostle Peter would surely agree with that. In fact, he says in today's scripture that we are to live for the will of God. How are we doing at that? Are we living for the will of God? Are we living to do the will of God? Is that, the, is that what is driving us in everything that we do? I suspect many of us live as if God is often on the periphery of our lives instead of at the very center. Well, I hope this sermon inspires us to live with God at the very center. Today's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 4, 1-6, which I'm going to read right now. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Well, as I said, my family returned from vacation. We got back late Wednesday evening from Washington, D.C. and New York City. We rented uh, basement apartments in both cities using, um, what's it called? (laughs) Uh, uh, What's it called? Airbnb. Thank you. My first experience with Airbnb. And when we got to Washington, we were able to park in an alley behind the apartment. There was a driveway. We could park there. And so we just parked our car, and from that point forward, we took the subway, we walked, we Ubered, whatever we needed to do to get around. But New York City was different. We rented a place in Brooklyn, and like everyone else there, we had to park on the street. Can I tell you that the thing that I, the only thing really that I dreaded about this trip was driving in New York City and parking on the street in New York City. It scared me for whatever reason. Um, Lisa had read that 40% of the traffic in Brooklyn is people driving around looking for parking. And having experienced it firsthand, I'm sure that's true. Maybe that's underestimating, I don't know. Um, There is no parking in Brooklyn. There are a lot of cars, and it's like there's no parking at all. Um, And, of course, you know, I I think what scared me was I just wanted to blend in, you know. And and here we have this minivan with a Georgia license plate, and these northerners are going to see us, and they're going to think we're idiots already. We don't know how to drive, and, and I don't know. 
So I was scared about that. But you know what? We did okay. We figured it out. We know how the system works. And let me explain it to you. Even if you're not going anywhere by car in New York City, even if you're going to take the subway everywhere, and of course you can take the subway everywhere, you can't leave your car parked in any one place for very long. Do you, do you know why? We didn't, but now we do. Because at least once, maybe twice each week, a street sweeper cleans alternate sides of each street at certain times. And the times are listed on these parking signs. So, for example, on Monday morning between 8.30 and 10, the side of the street where our car was parked was being cleaned. So you have to move your car, and then at 10 o'clock you can, you know, be back on that side of the street. Well, I needed all the uh, moral support I could get. So Lisa joined me early Monday morning. We were going to move our car, find a parking space somewhere, and just, you know, be fine. Here's the thing. We failed utterly. There was no parking within miles, as far as we could tell, of our apartment. Except on those sides of the street that were being cleaned and those cars, you know, were not there, but that wouldn't, we can't park there, right? Because we get ticketed. But here's the thing. Here's what I noticed. I'm so proud of myself. Um, I noticed that many of the cars that had been parked on our side of the street were now illegally double parked on the other side of the street. The owners had parked them there until after the street sweeper came, at which point they'd get back in their cars and move them to the other side of the street. There'd be plenty of parking, you know, if you were there, you know, right when the the time was up. So like a couple of old pros, Lisa and I, we were like, we're going to do that. So we double parked. Now we didn't go back to our apartment because we were afraid to get, you know, get a ticket or whatever. The the locals did. They were nowhere to be found. They know how the system works. But, um, but so we sat in our car for 45 minutes and I said, as soon as I start seeing cars pulling over to the other side of the street, I'm going to join them. And that's exactly what I did. About 20 till, about 20 till 10, Cars started moving over, and I moved over, and, and we sat in the car for another 20 minutes. But when it was 10 o'clock, we got out, and we just mission accomplished. It was awesome. Um, Lisa has a friend in Brooklyn who told us <laughs> that, that for most of the people who live there in New York City, this is all the driving they do every week. <laughs> They move their car from one side of the street to the other and back again about twice a week. Uh, isn't that, that, I just find that very funny. Their car, their car is not an important part of their life. I mean, it's there in case they need it, but mostly they don't need it. When they need to go somewhere, they walk to the subway station, right? And when I heard this, I thought to myself, there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere. And, 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 and indeed there is, even in this week's scripture. How often is our relationship with Jesus Christ like, like a parked car 
in Brooklyn. It's on the on the periphery of our life, not something that's at the very center of our lives, but but more like something that we resort to when we have to in case of emergencies. We, we live as if Christ isn't living in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Instead, he's over there a, a few blocks away when we need him. Sure, sure, we may go to church on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, it belongs to us. Instead of trusting in Christ completely, instead of depending on him daily, hourly, moment by moment, we place our trust in other things and other people to get through our lives. How, how, different, how different is the kind of faith that Peter describes in today's scripture? Peter is telling us that living an authentic Christian life means putting our faith on the line every day. It means we are willing to suffer for our faith in Christ. It means we're willing to lay down our lives if necessary for the sake of Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his glory. When we were in Washington the week before, the boys and I went to a place called the International Spy Museum. Doesn't that sound like fun? And it was. And the Spy Museum had actual props and actual automobiles that had been used in actual James Bond movies. But, but even more, they had genuine gadgets from decades past that actual spies used for espionage. Uh, hidden weapons, guns, knives, bombs that spies could conceal on their bodies. Binoculars, telescopes, communication devices, various disguises. And they also had these tiny containers that enabled them to hide cyanide capsules. You know about this. I've seen this in the movies. Didn't know they were real, but they are. You know what those are for? So that if the spy is captured by the enemy, they would choose death rather than risk spilling, giving away state secrets. I've seen that in the movies, but I didn't know they were real, but they are. These spies would rather die than betray their king or country. There is something admirable about that, that that kind of loyalty, that kind of courage, that kind of self-sacrifice for a greater cause. But here's the thing. We have no greater cause in this world than the cause of Christ. We serve no king greater than Jesus himself. We serve no king who is more worthy of our loyalty, our courage, our sacrifice. A king for whom we ought to gladly sacrifice everything, including our lives, if he asks us to do so. But, but, but I get it. It's very unlikely that the Lord will ask us who live in or near Hampton, Georgia, to lay down our lives for him. 
We have religious liberty. We, we have the rule of law. We have rights under the Constitution. Thank God. So we, we don't suffer much for our faith around here, although many Christians worry that we will soon, as, as our American culture gets more and more secular and more and more hostile to Christianity. When we were at the Lincoln Memorial a couple of weeks ago, my family took turns reading Lincoln's second inaugural address, one of the greatest political speeches of all time, which was engraved on one of the walls of the memorial. Many of you have seen it, I'm sure. I haven't, I haven't read it, frankly, in decades, but we read it together two weeks ago. And when you read it, you can't help but admire how freely, how easily, how sincerely Lincoln incorporated his specifically Christian convictions, theological convictions, related to God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's judgment, into this moving reflection on the Civil War, which, unbeknownst to him, perhaps, would come to an end in just a few days after he delivered it. His words were profound and profoundly Christian. If any president or politician spoke like that today, it's not so much that they would face a backlash over church-state separation, although I'm sure they would. It's that most Americans wouldn't understand what they were talking about. Our culture has changed that much. We don't share a common Christian vocabulary. We don't share common Christian convictions. We're not, in general, biblically literate as Americans in the way that we used to be. I'm not saying that our country was ever a Christian nation. Um, but, you know, there was, a, there was a cultural kind of Christianity that, that enabled Abe Lincoln to give a speech and refer to the Bible and refer to God and refer to theology. People would know what he's talking about. On, on one occasion last week, when we were on the subway in New York, a woman who had this beautiful, lilting Jamaican accent stood up on the subway train to share the gospel. I'm sure this sort of thing happens frequently. It happened once in our uh, several days there. And it was a thoughtful, well-delivered sermon. In fact, she would pause at each stop to allow people to get on and get off. And like everyone else on the train, I didn't dare make eye contact with her. You know, it's like, look down, look away. You know? um, but I was listening intently to what she was saying. And to my surprise, everything that she said was right on the money theologically speaking. In other words, she was speaking the truth. And she was doing so in a, with a gentle manner, in a, in a kind sort of way. And I get it. It made me uncomfortable. It made a lot of people uncomfortable to hear her doing this. At least those who haven't learned to just ignore people like that entirely. But we all, we all would have been happier if this strange person would just be quiet and sit down like everyone else instead of exercising her First Amendment right to free speech. And yet, who knows? 
Who knows if the Lord didn't call her to speak these words in this particular place at this particular time? Who knows if the Holy Spirit wasn't using her words to reach one particular person? No one was looking at her, but that doesn't mean that someone wasn't listening. And as Scripture teaches, the gospel itself is power. Paul says in Romans 1, it's, it, it is power. Isaiah, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent sent it. But regardless what you think about what she was doing, this woman clearly wasn't preaching this message to win a popularity contest. She wasn't trying to blend in as People like me are so desperate to to blend in. She certainly wasn't going along to get along. Get along. She wasn't speaking this gospel truth from her heart in order to win friends or impress people. To her great credit, she didn't seem to care what other people thought of her what they said about her, and, and, and if push came to shove, what they did to her. Again, thank God that we live in a nation that protects free speech and religious liberty. But, but even if we didn't, if God forbid those rights were stripped away from us, don't you get the feeling that a woman like her wouldn't really care and would just keep on doing what she's doing. Of course she would. It takes courage to live like that. Why why would she do that? Because she has obviously taken to heart Peter's message in today's scripture, especially in verse 2, which tells us that we Christians are no longer supposed to live for human passions, or as the NIV puts it, for evil human desires, which includes a desire to blend in, a desire not to rock the boat, a desire not to step outside of our comfort zones. We live for one thing and one thing only. We live for the will of God. We live in order to do God's will and not our own Every moment of every day, we we live our lives committed to one goal and one goal only, pleasing God, glorifying God, obeying God, doing God's will. And Peter warns us here, living like this will bring suffering. I said a few weeks ago, because Peter has talked a lot about suffering in this letter, that Even if we don't experience any kind of persecution from outside, from people in the world, which I think we probably will if we were truly going to live in this way, but even if we didn't, Paul warns us, Ephesians 6, that the moment we become Christians, guess what? We are enlisted in an army to fight a spiritual war, right? But if we're going to live in this way, it's very possible that we will face some ostracism, some ridicule, perhaps we'll harm our reputation. And those are bad. That's bad enough. I mean, think think of the carefully curated images of ourselves that we post on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and other 
forms of social media. We want everyone to see us in the best light, literally. I mean, watch, watch teenagers take selfies of themselves, and it's just like one after the other until they find the one that's just perfect. <laughs> this online avatar that we create isn't real. The image that we project on social media isn't really who we are. But we want other people to think that it is. So if we're going to commit ourselves to living for the will of God, that will mean ultimately not giving a flip about our reputations, our popularity, our public image. And that alone will create suffering. And and we're supposed to be okay with that. We're supposed to be okay with doing anything that pleases God. Are we okay with that? Are we willing to accept these terms? If not, are we willing to be disciples of Jesus Christ? Ask yourself that because this this is what discipleship means. It's not supposed to be easy. We're supposed to have a willingness to follow Jesus, even if it means suffering for him. And by the way, verse one is a difficult verse. There's another difficult verse later on, but verse one is difficult. It says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What on earth does that mean? It doesn't mean that as soon as we start suffering for Christ, we somehow achieve sinless perfection. It means that when we are willing to live for God, even though doing so means suffering, then sin can no longer have the same hold over us, the same power over us. I mean, isn't sin at its base an effort to satisfy ourselves, to to make ourselves happy, to please ourselves at the expense of other people, at the expense of God? When you're so committed to doing God's will that you're willing to suffer for it, well, sin won't be nearly so tempting, will it? It can no longer give you what you most desire, Because what you most desire is doing God's will, glorifying God, pleasing God. I know someone right now who is losing sleep, who has lost sleep over the past week because of North Korea. She's not alone. I bet there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands possibly of Americans who have lost sleep or who are at least worried about North Korea. Did you hear the news? As of last week, according to the experts, North Korea can now launch an intercontinental ballistic missile to the Midwestern United States. Now, a few weeks ago, the experts said that they demonstrated that they were capable of launching an ICBM on Alaska. And some of us thought, well, Alaska's a long way away, and uh, not many people live there, so I'm not going to worry too much about that. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, you know, but now the North Koreans can launch an ICBM, potentially loaded with a nuclear warhead, to 
the heartland of the United States? I mean, who wouldn't be worried? Who wouldn't lose sleep? It's not like uh, Kim Jong-un has proven himself to be the most mentally stable of world leaders. Shouldn't we be worried? Well, for a host of good theological reasons, we should not be worried. I can't go into most of them, but, but one reason is what Peter says here. And this is a tough one, but this is the gospel truth. Our happiness, our comfort, our safety, the longevity of our lives, whether we suffer or not, whether we die or not, even die in a nuclear holocaust, these are not the reasons we're here on earth. We're here for God's will, for God's kingdom, for God's glory, nothing else. This was Jesus's own attitude, Peter tells us, and we are supposed to arm ourselves with that attitude, that same way of thinking, Peter says. I'll never forget a hospital visit that I made many years ago when I was up in Alpharetta. I was visiting a man. He was 86 years old. He had enjoyed a long life of good health, but now near the end of his life, he was in the hospital with a serious illness. And at that time, none of us knew whether he would live or die. I th- he did survive that, by the way. He could still be alive today for all I know, but it wasn't clear at that time. But when I visited him, I was struck by the fact that he was so angry to be there. He resented that he had gotten sick. He was bitter and disappointed. He said, I don't know why this is happening to me in a very grumpy way. And I don't want to judge him too harshly. Maybe I would do the same thing. Maybe any of us would. But I prayed, I prayed, leaving the hospital, I prayed, please, Lord, please, 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 whether I die at 46 or 86 or 106, please don't let me die like this. You've given me this gift of life to which I'm not entitled to even a moment. And when you take it away, I have no right to complain. Because you didn't put me here for my own sake, for my own happiness, for my own enjoyment. For as long as you give me life, my life belongs to you. Do with it. Do with me as you please. That's what I want. That will ultimately make me happy. Let me live according to your will alone. Amen. I'll leave you with this point. It's clear from today's scripture that each one of our lives ought to have, if we're Christians, ought to have a BC, a before Christ. Before Christ, I lived in this way. Before Christ, my life was characterized by these sins. But after Christ, I now live like this. I'm not saying that we're going to become perfect. And, and really, you know, it could be that you don't have a memory of a conversion experience, but you know you're a Christian now. 
And, and over the years, you've seen, you've seen in your own life fruit, evidence that, that as you've grown closer to the Lord, you, you have repented of sins. You have overcome some sin in your life. It's, it's a struggle. It's, it's, it's an ongoing journey, but it's working and you can see the evidence of it. You have uh, a before Christ in your life. It's, it's clear that our lives as Christians after Christ ought to be distinctly different. Different from the way we lived before, different from the way many, if not most, people live today. Are they distinctly different? Notice verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles, he means unbelievers. And Peter goes on to list some of the sins that result from living lives dedicated to pleasing ourselves rather than pleasing God. In other words, Peter is saying sarcastically, however much you've sinned in the past, that's sufficient. (laughs) That's enough. It's time for the sinning to stop. It's time to move on. It's time to arm yourselves with the same attitude and mindset of Jesus Christ and find in him the power to stop. Some of you, I suspect, not that I'm looking, not that I can look into your hearts and know this for sure, but it's very likely in a a congregation our size that some of you are no longer struggling with sin. And it's not because through the power of the Holy Spirit you've overcome sin. It's because you're no longer putting up a fight against it. You're just being carried away by it. And notice the language that Peter uses to describe sin. A flood of debauchery. What a great phrase. It's like a flood. You just, you just, you get caught up in it. You get swept up in it. You, you just go with the flow. If that describes any of you, I beg you this morning, please repent. It's time to repent. It's time to, to turn away. And I, I know none of us has the power on our own to just like stop with this sin. But but, but when when we repent, we turn to the Lord in faith and we say, I need you. I need you to help me change. I want to change. We bring to God. Repentance means bringing to God our desire to change. And then we let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And we just respond to the Holy Spirit. We just say yes to the Holy Spirit. But we it's likely that some of us are at that point where we need to repent and give our lives to Christ. Maybe we did it in the past. Maybe we did it at some point in the past, but maybe it wasn't genuine, or maybe it was, but we've gotten so far off the course that we need to get back on. Well, I invite you to do that today, if that describes you. And during the closing hymn, I'm going to be standing here at the altar, uh, as I often do, and um, if you have a decision to make concerning becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ or rededicating your life to the Lord um, if you've already made that profession of faith. You you can do that this morning. 
If you've been visiting this church for a while and you're ready to unite with it in membership, become a full-fledged member, um, you can make that decision as well. If you just want to come to the altar and pray, you can do that. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider joining us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church, which is in downtown Hampton, Georgia, on West Main Street. We have two services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and an 11 o'clock traditional. Thanks, and I hope to see you there.